Hey everyone, welcome to Rajit Show, the show where I interview people who are reshaping what it means to live well in the 21st century. We talk the creator economy, learning and building in public, and how we can hack our way out of our most pressing issues. Enjoy. Hey, awesome of you to join me. So this is Yash. So Yash goes to Syracuse. And I'm going to talk to him about building in public, learning in public, and some interesting stuff he's doing. There's not a lot of 19, 20-year-olds. Are you 19? I'm 18. Yeah, 18. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So not a lot of 18-year-olds working at startups while they're in high school. So really awesome to connect, really awesome to talk to you. So yeah, right off the bat, why don't you just go ahead and, and introduce yourself and talk a little about what you do? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Rajiv, for having me, by the way. This is like probably the first podcast thing I've ever been on. I've always thought about starting my own. Just talk to like my roommate and we just have interesting conversations. But it's really cool. I'm like listening to these podcasts where they talk to entrepreneurs and founders. Never expected myself to be on one of those, but really awesome that I got that opportunity. So I appreciate that. But yeah, like you mentioned, Ash, I go to Syracuse University and I'm studying finance here. And on the side, like mostly I'm working on projects that are more consumer oriented. So one thing is the Hype Advisor. We're building a professional investment platform for sneakers and all streetwear reselling. A lot of my friends are super into shoes and I've gone into shoes as well back in high school. I had a couple of friends who were starting up an idea like, hey, what if we could make a hedge fund, but for shoes, like we could just invest in shoes. So I was on board with that idea. We've been doing that for over a year now and we've just taken a couple of pivots. So now we're more consumer focused and saying rather than how you can make money, how can you invest in something that you know and you appreciate? So yeah, more investing in the culture aspect. Other than that, currently I'm working for Open Water Accelerator as a venture scout lead. I'm building out their venture scout program and figuring out how we can take student founders to another level at schools that usually aren't typically entrepreneurially represented and things like that. So those are the two main things. As a side project, I'm, I'm helping Sudarshan, you might know him, with Fion.tech for lead generation. Also working um, on a kind of cool app that helps you and your friends decide where to eat. Always fun projects happening. But yeah, that's kind of my life story for the time being. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting life story. Yeah, a few things stuck out to me. First of all, you got a lot on your plate. And then funny story, I was supposed to talk to Sudarshan on Saturday and then he didn't wake mm -hmm. up because we're on Yeah, no, person. Sudarshan missed so many meetings on Saturday. We had another one for another project we're working on. He's just, yeah, I went to the farmer's market for lunch and I'm like, Oh man. Okay. Yeah. I'm still waiting for him to reply to my email. Maybe okay. he's listening to this. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So talking a little bit more about investing in shoes. That sounds like a pretty cool idea. So I'm a little bit into shoes. I'm a little bit of a sneakerhead, but yeah, I read stuff about hype and how hype sells and hype drives the value up. So can you talk a little bit about how Hype Advisor works and, and what it means to invest in streetwear? Sure. Yeah. So I think you're spot on about how hype creates value. I think that doesn't apply to shoes anymore or just like investing values, but rather humanity in general. I think one of the biggest things out there right now that I've just started to realize is social capital which I would argue is actually more important than actual financial liquid capital, mm -hmm. where people are always dying to be a part of something and they're always dying to be a part of their, they want their ego to be raised. Yep. So let's say I'm becoming an open water venture scout lead that added social capital me saying that, hey, I'm now working for a venture capital firm. I have the potential to influence the future in technology. If I invest in your company, then maybe you can raise capital in the future forward and things like that. And you can have a big future for your company. And I think that's one big, but in sneakers as well, where people want to be a part of a kind of a collection. And sneakers, there's such a low supply usually of certain shoes and there's yep. a high demand. So that's why the price on retail might start for $100 and then the shoes start, you know, selling for 500 
So that's why a lot of people are confused. Like, why are you wearing $500 shoes that have the word Supreme on them? And it's not yeah. so much the design, but rather the opportunity to be a part of something, right? It's almost like an insider club, like Clubhouse is doing right now. Yeah. Like you're part of an exclusive club. My opinion, Clubhouse is slightly overrated. There's really not that much happening anymore, but people want to be a part of it because of the invite basis. But in sneakers, the invite basis is money. You have to pay a certain amount of money to be a part of the club. Yep. And that's where the investment value really is. So for the hype advisor, investing in sneakers typically means um, our hype. the hype fund is our main service. Mm-hmm. What it basically consists of is a couple of times a year, we've had two funds so far, one of them back in October of 2019, mm-hmm. and then the recent one in October, August 20th, uh, August 2020. Mm-hmm. So what it means is we'll open up a fund for an hour for a week, and we'll talk about it. We'll be like, we'll promote it a bit. Then investors have the opportunity to come in and they'll invest however much they want with a minimum of $100. And then after that week kind of closes, we lock all investments for nine months. And then we just focus on making investments and trying to you know get the best returns possible. Gotcha. That's what we've been working on in the past couple of months. Gotcha. So I, yeah, I was checking out the Hype Advisor website a little bit um, before this. So I basically how it works is, and obviously you jump in here, is I invest $100 in the Hype Fund or more. And then you guys make investments in certain shoes that you think the exclusivity is going to make double, triple, whatever in value. And then basically, how does it work in terms of you guys making money? And then how does it work in terms of me getting my return? Sure. You mentioned exclusivity. I think that's one big factor. There's mm-hmm. a lot and a lot of different factors that go into sneaker reselling. I wish it was that simple as and you could just calculate like the supply and demand and do the ratio and math. Like that's one big factor of it. But another kind of important thing that comes into play is colorways. People are huge into designing. Like when it comes to fashion, our generation and specific communities, they care more about the brand and the designer than they do about the actual kind of product. So if a specific designer makes a shoe, like you see, like there's Travis Scott shoes now, those tend to have more value just because of the name and the social capital, once again, that Travis Scott brings. So those are some of the other factors. There's colorways, there's a specific size that determines what the price is going to be, things like that. Um, In terms of how we make money off the hype fund, we have a basic, simple hedge fund financial model, but we don't like to call this a hedge fund because we're more of a community, more of a professional Mm -hmm. investing community as opposed to a hedge fund where it's all independent and things like that. So how we make money specifically, when you invest in your, let's say you invest $100, we take 2% of that as management. And then based on your performance, we get a performance fee. So let's say out of that $100 investment, one of the assets is 12, reaches 12.5% ROI. If it's anything below that 12.5% ROI hurdle, we'll only give, we'll take 20% of that as a performance fee. But if it goes higher than that, then we'll take 40%. And that's primarily just because of not the volatility, but the potential that the streetwear market has for returns. We've had specific assets go up 80, 90% in a span of months. So it's just making sure that in the the situation that a sneaker does surprisingly well, we're still able to profit off of that. That's awesome. Super cool. I love that. Yeah. Not a hedge fund, but a community. That's awesome. Yeah. So you're 18. Were you 18 when you got involved with, you you were one of the first hires, right? Or the first sort of people involved? Yeah. So we had four co-founders and there are a couple of tight-knit friends from Berkeley and then just also like personal friends. I joined in August, 2019. So I was 17 at the time, just starting my senior year of high school. Wow. So how does a 17 year old end up at a, not a hedge fund, a, a community that invests in sneakers? How does that happen? I think it's mostly passion and drive. I sound super cliche and things like that, but it's really what it comes down to. I think the story of that I actually like the story of, because I think it adds a lot of value and it just shows what it means. In August, I was just scrolling through Instagram and someone was posting about, hey, what if we could make a hedge fund for sneakers? And he was posting about it live. They had an Instagram account. Back then, the Hype Advisor was more of a broadcasting thing. 
if you're in the sneaker world, but there's tons and thousands of Instagram pages who are either selling shoes or talking about how to sell shoes and things like that. So that's what it was at the time. And they posted this idea like, hey, what if we could make a hedge fund out of sneakers? Mm -hmm. And at the time I was super into investment banking or love stocks and things like that. So I was like, I know about shoes and I know a lot about finance for the time. And so I reached out to them over, you know, Instagram DM. I'm like, hey, I sent you an email. I'd love to help you guys out with this project. What do you guys think? And I got, I just got rejected right then and there. They were like, we really appreciate that. We're right now, we're such a small company. We can't be hiring interns or things like that. I'm like, all good, man. Completely get it. If you guys do pursue this idea, do you want to hop on a call real quick? I have some ideas that could help you with this. And they emailed me or something like that. And at 7 p.m. this random evening, I get an email back saying, hey, we'd love to have for you a call. Are you free tonight? And it was just like right then. And like within 30 to 45 minutes, I just brainstormed all of the ideas that I honestly just bullshitted about. I didn't know about those ideas. Like, but I said, you know, I'd have ideas for you guys. I really didn't at the time. So I had to quickly just think about ideas and things like that on the spot. But when I hopped on the call, I presented all my ideas that I'd formulated for the past 45 minutes and also on the back burner for the past couple of days and weeks. So after I hopped on the call, they were like, hey, man, great call. I thought it was a really bad call because they rejected every single idea I put out there. I was like, I mentioned this idea. They were like, that's a great point. But we've tried this and this is why it wouldn't work. And I was like, oh, man. All right. No worries. Two weeks later, I get an offer letter saying, hey, man, we'd love to bring you in as a marketing intern and where I would just be running content for the newsletter and things like that, running their Instagram. So I was like, you know what? Here's a start. You work your way up. Started there and I just got really close to the um, CEO. I kept helping him on projects, kept bothering him saying, hey, this is great, but I have more time. How about I help you with this that you're working on? Kept doing that and eventually just kept talking and with him and the team. And now, you know, we're an 11 person team where I get to help with the co-founder specifically with business strategy, growth and things like that. So that's the ride. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. You just kept bothering them. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've I heard find of this, that, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, so I was going to say primarily, I find that toddlers are usually quite accurate in life. It turns out that if you start bothering people enough, they tend to give you what you want. Like toddlers yeah. are probably spot on about a lot of things in life. Yeah. Kids got to figure it out. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called, it's called the uh, briefcase method. No, I haven't. Tell me more yeah. about that. You, so you unknowingly, you use the briefcase method. So the briefcase method is, it's a way to generate leads for job offers. So basically when you go into a job, you go in and explain you use the product and then you explain how they could make the product better. And the briefcase method is actually something someone sells online to help people get more returns on their job offerings. And you did yeah. it at 17 without even knowing about it. So I just thought that was so cool. Yeah. Um, that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think people are really protective of their ideas probably because they probably thought in the back of their heads that, that you had some good ideas and that's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. You took the yeah. initiative and it worked out. And now, so how long have you been with them for about more than a year now? Yeah, it's been a year and two months now. Wow. And yeah, uh, yeah how's that going so far? It's, Are you enjoying what you do? And what's the trajectory of the, the fun looking like? Yeah, sure. So I think the, I'm definitely enjoying what I'm doing in the company. There's always been instances where I wasn't. And marketing is one of those things where, yes, you can do it well. And there's, it's so gratifying. But it can also be a straight hustle sometimes just going, waking up every morning and just having to do lead generation or having to just promote your product on social media, doing the classic follow people and hope they follow back and try to interact with them, try to post content and hopes that they're going to reach out to you mm -hmm. or be, want to invest in your company or something like that. And it, at times I was just done with the project saying, this isn't something that I want to do. And I just voiced my concerns to Max, who's the CEO and um, mm -hmm. co-founder. And he was just talking, he was just talking to me. He's just like, yeah, definitely. I completely understand that. And we talked about my position. So in terms of transparency, that's always there. I always tell Max when I'm not enjoying my position. And as a general startup, we all know 
that if we could do this full time, make this our career, that'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. But we also understand there's there's a certain threshold of what we can and cannot do. And mm-hmm. right now, our main focus is to learn from this project and also for us to be able to take something away from it. I should be able to go into a job interview and reference what I did at the hypervisor. That's what we're trying to do. Just make sure that it's a learning opportunity for everyone. So that's what we're really trying to do in terms of hiring culture and values and things like that. In terms of the fund specifically, we have some interesting pivot ideas in the future where we're trying to more make it more digital, where we're trying to make it so people were able to invest in sneakers themselves. The main thing that we've realized is people like investing in sneakers. That's not the problem. The main problem with our fund idea right now is that once you put money, you're not seeing it again for nine months and yeah. people don't like that. If I want to do that, I just put it in a savings account and not touch it or something. But we're trying to make it so you'd be able to withdraw and do whatever you want with your money, be completely liquid, yeah. which is difficult, but we're definitely working through it. So in terms of fund, I think this August fund, we've maybe made eight or 9% in one month. So we're looking good so far. Definitely going to hit our benchmark of what we expected 15% of 50% in nine months. But those are just expectations. We That's really impressive. Don't know for sure. Yeah. 15%. Yeah. I'm hoping that we're able to hit that benchmark after fees and after a buffer room. Main thing for us is we try to make 20%. And then after that, it's probably going to go down to 15 after fees and whatever else happens and transaction fees and things like that. But yeah, that's the fund's progress. Awesome. Yeah. And this whole fintech space is heating up. I know there's a startup called Kalshi. That w- they were also in the Gen Z Mafia server, I think. Kalshi, they- I think I've um, heard their name. Yeah. Yeah. They let you trade on the outcome of events. So it's stuff like- I did hear about that. Yeah. The Lakers will win the NBA finals or something like that. And then they give you some credits and then you can invest in whether that's going to happen or whether that's not. Or will the vaccine come out before April, 2021? Stuff like that. That's really interesting. Sounds like just outright gambling. I feel like there's definitely a loophole <laughs> regulatory there somewhere. I feel like that's just gambling on basic life events, but whatever floats your boat. It is gambling on basic life events, but uh, they've raised a lot of money. So we'll see. We'll see how that pans out. But uh, yeah, it sounds like you guys have some cool stuff going on. So have you mostly been doing marketing, you said, for the whole time? Mostly for up until January of 2020, I was just doing full growth and marketing and things like that. And that's around when I started becoming more of a team member and we were starting to expand our team. So I was like, hey, this is what I want to do in the company. And since then, I've been more business dev and growth. I find that's where I'm best able to utilize my talents. Marketing is great. And I've found out that I can do it, come up with guerrilla marketing techniques or what's going to really affect the consumer and what's going to push them to look at a product. But what I'm really into is trying to find out what can we, how do we get from idea to MVP? How do we get from MVP to getting a full product out that people are going to want to use on a regular basis? So I'm more thinking about, okay, so if we're going to pivot, we have to think about X, Y, and Z. I'm known as the devil's advocate for almost any situation in the company. When we have a company meeting, I'm always talking about how this idea isn't going to work. And I usually answer my own problems with the solution saying, yes, this is going to work. But if you think about this, it might be able to work or something like that. So more business dev and growth for sure. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's really funny. Yeah. So you're a marketing intern, then you go to business dev and you've been doing that for about, it's October now. So you've been doing that for about nine months. So yeah. And then you also go to school at Syracuse, but you're from California. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What's it like on this coast? And so are you majoring in business over at Syracuse or... Yeah, I'm majoring in finance. So, um, you know, still holding my track, even entering college, I was still holding onto my idea of investment banking. I only realized in the summer of after I declared my major that I was more into VC and venture capital specifically. But yeah, so coming to this coast from the Bay Area, I think the main thing what I wanted to experience was something where I would grow and learn. I think that's always been the values, right? So I had a, I messaged a senior at Syracuse on LinkedIn, just because I found out that he was a South Asian Student Association president. 
And I just reached out to him, just cold messaging him saying, hey, man, I'm trying to figure out where I need to go to college. I have to decide to commit. Do you want to tell me about your experiences and tell me what you think? And it turns out that he's actually one of my uh, good friends now that I'm on campus, but he was a huge advocate for you don't want to be the same person that you are in high school and carry that out through college. And he made a very good point that like for him, his name is Abi or and mm-hmm. throughout high school, he was called Abhinav. And that's like the wrong pronunciation of his a name. So in college, he made a point that he was not going to be called that anymore. He's going to be called Abhinav and things like that. And so I don't know why, but that kind of stuck with me thinking that I need to escape this bubble of the Silicon Valley. I need to get out, experience different cultures and different values. So I decided to come to Syracuse and become my own person, I think. It's definitely been, it's definitely exceeded my expectations, meeting the different kinds of people and understanding that in life, there's going to be people who disagree with your values and you just need to go forward and do the best you can. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of Hassan Minaj actually, or Hassan Minaj. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess I just Americanized his name, but uh, yeah, he, he made a big point too. He said, people are going to say my name properly. And, and to this day, he says his name properly. And for me, it was always like most of us South Asian people, the diversity of the place that we come from is staggering and unimaginable for people here. And it's very difficult to explain in a few seconds. And also most of our names belong to a different alphabet. And so it's difficult for people to say it. So I I always felt like it was just easier. Obviously my full name is Rajat. And then the T it's difficult to explain it to people. The T sort of sounds like a TH, just a short A and and stuff like that. And, And so I just went by Raj in school, in high school, but yeah, maybe I'll switch back. That's that's good motivation. But you said something else that stuck out to me. Yeah, the past two two of the interviews I've done, one of the big things that we've been talking about is living authentically. And obviously that's important. The the people I spoke to did it in in a lot of different ways. I spoke to Steph Smith, who's an indie hacker, and and so she made the decision to leave her consulting job and, and start learning to code. I interviewed Nathan Lung, who's he works at Jupiter, which is a startup that's automating groceries and um, grocery ordering. And so he decided to live authentically to by just leaving college. He went to the University of Michigan, had an internship at Google, just stayed at Google, and then decided to work at a startup. And, and it's an interesting thread because you're also talking about living authentically, which is super interesting. And so you also have this same desire. It's there's not a lot of people you hear, right, coming out of college, coming out of high school, and then just cold emailing someone on LinkedIn, right? Most high school seniors or high school juniors wouldn't even know what LinkedIn was. And so I'm just wondering about what you think about that whole idea of living authentically, if you think about it at all, and how you try to embody that with your own life. That's a great question. I think that's a very well put way of saying it. Living authentically basically means to me, I think living in the most genuine way possible. Mm-hmm. where you figured out your priorities. I think living authentically almost means you figured out the meaning of life for yourself. And it's a very difficult idea to grasp. But one thing that comes out of Gen Z Mafia specifically, another big saying is maximize serendipity. And I feel mm-hmm. like those two values go hand in hand with each other, serendipity and also living authentically. So I think both of those, when it comes down to it, really means you have your life's values in front of you and you're just going to live by them on a regular basis, making sure that nothing really interferes with those. And those values aren't something like, oh, I'm going to be a millionaire, I'm going to be a trillionaire, but they're rather the raw kind of feelings that are going to make up your daily basis when it might seem like I just saw a quote by Paul Graham the other day and he was using a specific word which is really interesting quotidian it basically means a mundane kind of feeling or something that's very ordinary and daily and I think it's a weird way of thinking about it but the daily things that you experience on a regular basis you just need to make sure that you maximize those so whether that means for me 
I live my life with the idea that you just need to make sure that you're going to be happy for the entire life. You're really not focusing on anything else besides happiness and that you're adding value to the world around you. And I think I've just been living by that and figuring out what can I do to do that. And when it comes down to cool messaging on people on LinkedIn and things like that, I think that just stems from my desire to get to know people. I was always huge into finding people to meet, understand them and understand the different walks of life that people come from. Like in my college application essay, I was specifically talking about how I was on a train coming back from Berkeley from a meeting at the hypervisor since all the students were at UC Berkeley. So I was coming back from one of those meetings and I was thinking about it. And there was just, there's, it's pretty common that people hop on the BARTs and they do street performing or some sort of acts or things like that. Yeah. So I just remember looking at that specifically and I was watching the act and I thought it was so interesting. And at the end, it was weird. Like I made eye contact with one of them specifically. And I don't know what it was. It sounds super cheesy and out of a movie, but it felt like, you know, there's a specific connection there. And it wasn't that I was a student in high school and he was a street performer, possibly out of a job and trying to do this as a side hustle, but rather that we were both, you know, disciples of life, trying to figure out what can we gather from the next steps ahead of us, figuring out how the future is going to impact, how our presence is going to impact the future and things like that. So I think that's what's specifically interesting to me and trying to live a super genuine life where the quotidian things in your life become what you really look forward to. So I think that's my definition of living authentically. Yeah. And so you mentioned the Gen Z mafia. I hadn't even heard of that, but maximize serendipity. That's awesome. And Gen Z mafia is a part of a trend, is a part of a greater trend. We spoke about it before when we were talking about online communities. One of the ones that's provided the most value for me is Indie Hacker. And it's amazing, Indie Hackers. And it's amazing that people that don't know each other can support each other and build each other up and, and help each other build, even online. And so we're in a weird sort of moment right now as a country, honestly, as a global people, I think. And so you spoke about living authentically and how has being a part of a community like Gen Z Mafia enabled you to focus on expressing those ideals and being a creator? That's a great question. I think when it comes down to it, right, the main thing that humans want is interaction and being able to express their ideas and being self-validated, like we talked about earlier, right? They want to be a part of the hype. They want to be a part of that bigger kind of family. And whether it be Gen Z Mafia or Indie Hackers, like you mentioned, or other various communities that, you know, I've been a part of, a uh, remote students community that they've rebranded to Ladder. Ladder all of these yeah. communities, what they have is being a part of a community that they're all helping each other, you know, thrive. And I think that's where the maximizing serendipity comes from, where you're able to talk to people and share these same values and create as one, as an entity, as opposed to as a solo creator trying to be a part of a community. When you join Gen Z Mafia and the sudden trend of people putting Gen Z Mafia on their Twitter bio or becoming a part of that community, it's not a way to express some sort of elitist kind of personality, but rather saying that I belong to this family of people that I'm supporting. I'm going to be able to take these ideas and fulfill them in my regular basis. So it's not just GZM isn't just a community where people build things, but rather the fireside chats, the general conversations that people have, the general kind of humdrum of the Discord chats. I think that's what really sums up GZM and helps these creators or builders because they're able to have these general kind of quotidian conversations once again, that people are just asking, hey, what are you building? How can I help? How can I create value? And people asking each other, how can I create value is so helpful for the concept of maximizing serendipity, right? Because everyone's helping each other try to thrive and grow as one, as an entity. And I think that's how creators can really be successful is if they're a part of a general community or a larger organization where they have people validating their ideas or helping them grow. I think that's what it really comes down to. And I think as a creator, being a part of a community is so important because that's where you find feedback, right? 
with, with whether it be technical feedback by your ideas or hey i think you might need to shift your attitude from this to this right these specific things can only be influenced by community of people who have done what you've done and discord and gzm and ladder all of these communities like you mentioned mm -hmm. they're helping each other live authentically by having feedback on their ideas i love that yeah you mentioned uh, a word there you said family and it's so interesting because you're from california you are you from san jose yeah exactly okay yeah yeah so you're from san jose right now you're talking to someone from new hampshire that you've never met in real life and you have this entire community of people gzm is now a, a global community yeah. and i spoke to steph smith about it she talked about she calls it curating your life and what she means by that is making active choices about who your friends are and who the people that you surround yourself with are because we're all subject to this accident of birth right she was born in canada you were born in i'm assuming the bay area but i'm from around here but we're not because of the tools we have now restricted to friendships and support by those people who live near us and what has been the most powerful thing for you to create these connections online it sounds like you've made a lot of different amazing connections online starting as early as high school and probably even earlier and yeah, what are your favorite stories and instances of connecting with people online? And, and how has that been most helpful to you? I think that's, that's definitely a great question. I think, ironically, what my answer to this question comes from a story someone else told me. And it was um, a specific person I was talking to about the Open Water Ventures got position. I think we were just talking. And he mentioned his application. He had this very interesting perspective that life, when you're a builder, right? Builders are very interesting people mm -hmm. because what they're building traditionally the best builders, in my opinion, they're not building for greed or corporate greed, or they want to become rich and millionaire. Most best creators and builders, they're building something they wish they had in their lives. They are the consumer and the founder simultaneously. And what they're building is something that isn't just a fragment of ideal. Oh, I'm going to build a fintech thing to help invest in mutual funds. Like, great. But the company values, everything that stemmed from it is their entire life experience, right? From, like you mentioned, from the color of your childhood bed to like what you do, what you did in middle school, what games, what, what you do at recess in middle school, all of those life experiences tend to come out when you build something. And I think that's why builders are so prone to being able to communicate with each other and build an online community easily. It's because when they're building something, every single project they're working on has a part of that person within it. It's, it's interesting because let's say like the hype advisor, the 11 people we have right now, all of us have poured part of our soul almost into that company. And that's what the company is. The hypervisor isn't just an investing platform. It's Max Shaw, it's Yashko Iwala, it's Tyler, it's Tyler Wu, it's Nathan Jew. It's all these different people that have put their efforts into this company. And I think that's why people are, these community, this community of builders is able to thrive, whether it be indie hackers or Gen Z Mafia or the latter. All these people are building something and they're letting their experiences show. And I think that's when it comes down to this family aspect, like I mentioned earlier, that's possible because everyone's sharing their ideas. They're sharing what they've built and what they've built is going off the basis. Like these are my childhood experiences and they're coming out in what I built. So when it comes down to talking to people, like you mentioned, you're from New Hampshire and I'll be talking to someone from across the world. And that's possible because everyone wants to validate each other's creations, which means validating each other's lives. Everything's interconnected. Like I am who I am. The hypervisor is part of who I am. I consider it almost a personality trait because I put my effort into that. And when people validate the hype advisor, like they're like, oh, that's a really cool idea. That's, that's an interesting concept. It's almost like my ego is being inflated, right? Whether you like it or not, people are validating your idea. And I think everyone likes having that kind of concept and like validating others' ideas. 
because it's like you get an inside look at other people's lives. When I talked to Emma, the creator of uh, Gen Z Mafia, mm-hmm. it was so interesting talking about her experiences, you know, what she's doing. Now she's living in San Francisco, you do, doing all these things. And it comes from what she's, where everything that she builds, it's coming from her experiences as well. Whether it be Emma, whether it be you, whether it be anyone across the world, every single builder kind of shares that exact same kind of standard of values where what they're building comes, it really is part of their life. I think that's why I'm able to call Gen Z Mafia family more than anything. Wow. When you're saying when we create something, we, it's a part of us and it's a reflection of who we are. And that's so amazing because if you think about that, so I'm a part of a book writers program. Sensibly, we're going to create something. And the guy that leads the book writers program, he goes, he put this quote up during one of the meetings. It goes, gosh, okay, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it goes, you are only as good as the last thing that you created. And I thought about that because that sounds like a weird idea, right? It's like the things that we create, they outlive us and they exist and they become their own real living things in a way. And as someone who likes to create things, I get very defensive when people don't like what I created, whether it's writing or whether it's, gosh, this podcast or whether it's my Twitter or whatever. I, I'm very defensive about what I create. And it makes so much sense now that you say that when it's, it's a part of us, we're protecting ourselves. When you protect what you created, you're really just protecting yourself. And one of the things I, I, I want to talk about is how that process works for you. So you mentioned that you, know, you got a ton of things on your plate. You have Hype Advisor, you have Open Water, but you're also doing some cool stuff on the side, right? Talk to me about starting a side project what excites you most about what you're creating and talk to me about that process of Yash creating something that reflects Yash. Right. Yeah. So I think the creation process is definitely something people have been trying to figure out for years. What creates like Rahul, there's so many different companies, like he's talking about making moonshots in his book where he talks about what creates a specific moonshot company. And I think so many people are always trying to identify what creates that next big company. Who's going to create Facebook? What's going to create the next big, uh, huge company that's going to dominate the world? And I think a lot of that comes down to its dependency, right? People can, I can always give you the standard answer. What creates a good side project? It's market timing. It's the technical skills you bring to the team. It's the team itself. There's this standard answer. But when it comes down to what you're creating, it's just when it comes down to it's like what you believe in the project, right? The passion drive that you're going to take to make sure that project, that reflection of yourself is the best reflection of yourself. What, when you're creating something, is what you're creating really the best version of yourself? And if not, you keep working to make sure that it is. And when it is the best version of yourself, it's going to do well, unless it isn't, right? There's always going to be something where when you create the best version of yourself, that version of yourself will succeed. And it's no, there's no such thing as the best version of yourself because you can always get better. So it's almost a perpetual catch-22 where you're saying, my project's never going to get better unless I get better. And there's a cycle where it keeps going on and on. So when I'm creating something specifically, the most exhilarating part to me isn't just so much, hey, I'm starting a new project. Like, I think that's just initial, that's the runner's high, right? Mm-hmm. Just the other side of it. The runner's high is you finish the long run, you accomplish this. Wow, I really did. I completed this project. You get that insane high. But, and there's always the flip side to this. I'm starting this new project. It's going to be so insane. Awesome. But rather, what's most interesting to me is when you're going through the mundane parts of the project and you get these little small milestone victories right? You find this idea and someone you're like, dang, this isn't feasible. This isn't going to work out. We've had so many instances at the hypervisor like that, where someone does come back of the envelope calculation says, oh, we're going to need a hundred million dollars in assets to be profitable. Shit. Like I can't get a hundred million dollars, but then you realize, wait, what if we pivot here and we're able to take this idea a new way? 
that's what really makes it the company worth working for, right? These are the things that you really want to listen out and do because these small milestone victories where someone says, this isn't going to be possible. And then you say, yes, it is because of this and this. I think that's probably the best, most exhilarating part of a journey. I think those are the parts that people need to power through. Once you power through that, if you're going to keep doing that, the company will succeed because you'll create the best version of yourself because you keep trying to improve it. So I think that's my answer. It's a long-winded answer. It doesn't really make 100% sense, but I think it's there's really no strict answer to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you got a lot of different things going on. So you, yeah, as we've talked about a few things, but so you're also helping Sudarshan out with Fion. And so that sounds like a moonshot company to me. We stop fires before they start. So talk about collaborating with that team and what your role is. Yeah, sure. It's definitely a really cool company. I'm not sure if it's 100% moonshot, but it's definitely a very interesting company to be involved with. I think in terms of GZM, there's so many other moonshot companies out there. Geez, like when I'm talking to tomorrow, foundation.si, they're a company that's trying to build factories that are going to make factories on the moon. That's literally a moonshot company, right? Like it's incredible what GZM comes up with every single day. But in terms of fun, like I think the story of what I've done there isn't as exhilarating as the story of how I got there. I think this, well, that's just another cool demo, right? I think that's the, that's the end moral of the story. There, what I'm doing is helping uh, Sudarshan with lead generation and trying to figure out how we can get our product in the hands of firefighters, enterprise companies, insurance companies, wineries, whatever it might be. So it's a lot of tedious work. But once again, it's that tedious work that I've put up with. It's most of my work there, it consists of the same thing. I'm dialing a phone number for a fire county, trying to find out who to talk to. And then I'm basically just going to get their email and information and write it down on a spreadsheet. That's it. But I'm doing that because I understand that I want to be involved with this kind of project because I understand that it's not going to be profitable for me in the future, but it's going to help the world. It's creating value for the people that need it. As a California resident, I understand like I don't want, like San Jose, we're safe from the fires for the time being, but there's been instances where San Francisco, San Jose, the sky is orange because of the fire. And it's a project that really means something to me because of my residence in California. And while it's not my project, it never was. I've only been a part of the team for two weeks, but it's more important to me as like a creation of Yash because it impacts the residents of California. I think that's one thing. And also Sudarshan's a great person to know. He's definitely a person, he's a community creator. And I think that's another task that I want to learn. When you can learn from someone, that's when you want to know you want to stay at the company, whether you're learning from the position or learning from the people you're working with. That's really the only incentive for a job. Of course, when bills come around and you need money, yeah, that's another incentive, but that's more of a extra, it's not really, it's, it's extrinsic, right? You're not working for yourself, you're working for the money. You want to find a company that appeals to you both in, you know, intrinsically and extrinsically. Mm-hmm. And I think Sudarshan's fine is a pretty good example of that. So yeah, that's that answer for that. Mm-hmm. And you, in a lot of ways, you sound like a social butterfly, right? You're hopping around and talking to a lot of different people. And so what's most exciting about that process for you? We've talked about GZM, but what's most excited about, what's most exciting about talking to different founders? Because obviously you can't get involved in every project, but what sort of approach do you take when you go to talk to a new person about their creation? Right. Um, I'll give you the standard VC answer that everyone's probably been trained to give you, which is adding value, right? Creating value to make sure that they will succeed. In GZM, Tay Allen, he's building PlayPixel. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's yep. a product where, right, they're making it so you can play in the video browser. games like 2K, GTA, browser, you know, on your laptop browser and use your phone as a controller. I thought that was a crazy product. I yeah, literally messaged them, reading from my messages, paraphrasing, this isn't crazy. This is, this shit's crazy. Why is anyone else doing what you're doing and why aren't you huge yet? That was my entire question. Like, 
it might have sounded slightly offensive. I've been hindsight, it probably was like, why aren't you guys bigger than you are? But we hopped on a call and he's asking me about growth strategies, right? Thinking, how can we take this product further? And that specific call wasn't for me to get involved with that project. Like I'm, I like that product as a consumer. I don't know why my friends aren't playing 2K on their phones. If they were able to do that, imagine high school where you're playing 2K on your phone and your laptop, like people would be doing that constantly. Mm-hmm. Like this entire product, I can imagine my friends wanting to use that. So that's what's appealing to me. I want to get that in the hands of the people that want to be able to use it. So that's why I was, I went in that conversation with an intent. How can I make this product something that my friends are going to use? And how can I help them, you know, understand that's what the large audience wants? Because awesome. a lot of my friends are very huge into NBA 2K, FIFA, Madden, all these games people like playing. And I know and like understand what they would have liked to see. So I've voiced that perspective to him. I think that's creating that value. The call that we're having right now, it's larger than that, right? You're not asking about a specific company. You're asking me about a general kind of audience, right? Think like living authentically, maximizing serendipity. But my entire intent with this call was creating value for you, right? How can I help you take the next step? Because it's more like you're investing in a person. I call with the people I think I'm investing in, that they have potential. There's really no financial motive for me to do this. Like you're not paying me for this podcast. Day Allen wasn't paying me to be a consultant for his company. Like it was more just how can I help this product be the best it can be? I think whether it be a casual chat or getting to know someone, I'm just trying to find out what's the next step in creating this per. How can I help create the best version of this person? I think that's what it stems down to. Awesome. And there's more tools than ever before. We live in this unbelievable time. There's more tools than ever before to add value. It's never been easier to create a pod, to start a podcast, to create a newsletter, even to build a website. It's really never been easier to do any of those things. And those are all processes that have the potential to add value. So I want to pivot a little bit. You and I, obviously, you were one of the first people I followed on Twitter. And Twitter is pretty cool. I just got on Twitter. Twitter's popping. The potential for people to add value and collaborate, I, I never really you know, thought of Twitter as like a supercharged LinkedIn, but I've heard it described that way so many different times. And I've seen people get opportunities off of Twitter. So what do you think about when you... I guess I'm assuming you take this same framework of adding value, right? Because the people that have a lot of Twitter followers ostensibly are adding value to different people's lives. Particularly this guy runs a company called Visualize Value or or runs a community called Visualize Value. That's the motive. But what's it like just interacting with tech Twitter, basically? Tech Twitter is definitely a powerful thing. I think when people describe it as a supercharged LinkedIn, they're not kidding for sure. On that or a couple of days ago, or maybe a week ago, I literally made a specific post solely about Twitter and how it really, really runs the tech industry. I think I put in the post, tech twi- the tech runs on Twitter and either you run with it as a VC or you die. There's really no other option. You need to be able to be involved with the pretense of what's going to happen in the future. Because most companies when they're starting off, whether it be a joke or not, they're starting off on Twitter. That's where the ideas come to play. I think as a VC, it's really important that you stay on top of Twitter and try to find out what are the next big things that are going to add value. And it's not so much a sourcing company as finding things on DealFlow, but rather building your investment thesis as well. Like I'll have um, Rahul talk about moonshot companies and how his philosophy is going to be something or something. And his philosophy that he just put in a tweet, I might think about that. It's going to run through my brain for a bit. And I might adopt something that I've learned from that internal conversation I have with myself in my investment thesis in the future. So I think Twitter is a great place for people to be able to express their own values. And those values are going to help shape other values. When you read something on Twitter, if it really resonates with you, you're going to be thinking about it for a while. It's interesting. And I think that's why Twitter is so relevant. And especially in the tech industry, people are always voicing out new ideas, thinking about what's possible and redefining what was previously possible. I think that's what's really interesting about that kind of sector of Twitter for sure. 
Yeah. In terms of adding value and being a Twitter presence, I think you're right. It's usually the people who add value. And I, it's also, it's, social media has a whole science behind it. If you're popular on social media, you aren't just randomly tweeting out insightful thoughts unless you're like someone who became famous for starting a company. People who are famous on Twitter either are famous for doing something or they went the route of becoming Twitter famous. Like Sahil from Gumroad, the founder of Gumroad, he has a huge Twitter presence and he started his entire thing solely off of Twitter. Like his life is basically on Twitter. And it's crazy to think that entire presence started on a social media platform where he was just trying to add value. So he tried to add value in ways that people haven't done before. He's famous for the one-liner, right? Yeah. Where he'll maybe put a one-line thing and makes people think. It's something you would think is ridiculous, but it's like insightful content, right? And like he'll post something like, oh, keep your enemies closer than your friends. And it'll be like something somewhat ridiculous and far-fetched. And yeah. almost like the Barnum effect of things like that, where you're really like, why does this even matter? Yeah. Great. Anyone could have said that. But he's able to craft these in such a way and build that presence that it's what people want to see. Yeah. So and I he think, posts I think Twitter's an interesting place. Yeah. yeah some funny stuff too. I saw one thing that was like, oh, housing in San Francisco is pretty cheap if you're living rent-free in VC's heads or something like that. Yeah. Like, great. It's funny. It's People, pretty funny. You're able to make these, uh, this content. I think that's what helps yeah. you run Twitter. It's witty stuff. Yeah. The interesting story about Rahul is I was a part of the same book writing program that I'm a part of. He started in um, January. And so... I, I should probably go ahead and tell you. So the, the book writing program is run by a professor at Georgetown uh, University called Eric Coaster. And they just, the biggest thing that they provide is a path to publish. So most of the people that started the program, they have a path to publish because there's a partner with the publishing house. And they take you to the process and you start and you build this huge thing down, which is to write a book and you build it into smaller and smaller chunks and you do 2000 words a week or 5,000 words a week for, for X amount of time. But yeah, the interesting thing about Rahul is he was a part of the program. And so while interviewing people for the program or for while interviewing people for the book, he got an internship opportunity out of it or an apprenticeship opportunity about it because he talked to the founder of Lux Capital and now he, I guess, interns at Lux Capital. Which is pretty wild to think about. And it's this thing that I, I think you embody as well, where you go out and talk to people. And I think people find themselves in the right place in the right time. That's a pretty serendipitous thing that happened to him. And the more I interact with, with Twitter and the more stories I hear, I, I see this over and over again. This kid called Brendan Jang is an apprentice at Visualize Value, simply because he reached out and had the founder of Visualize Value on his podcast. And it's so interesting because these people are our age. It's interesting. I think that comes into play of a lot of what I say, I take from things that people have taught me. Like Rahul is the master of adding value. And I'm sure he learned it from someone else as well. But the point being, it's timing and also adding value. And Rahul did, not only did he interview for the book, but he also proved himself to be someone that is able to create value consistently and constantly, and whether it be through the book, like his books, his investment thesis, things like that. I think it's just being able to once again, create value and show to someone else you're able to create value, people will see opportunity in that. And they're like, why would I reject someone who's able to create an entire opportunity for themselves and then excel in that opportunity? I think that's what it really comes down to. I think if that's one piece of advice is to high schoolers or people trying to get involved with projects, they're never going to be hiring for high schoolers or college students. Just never look for opportunities like that. You need to create your own opportunity. You define someone saying, hey, you need to do this and I can help you do it. And you give them a problem and you also give them a solution, right? And that's how you really succeed as a high schooler and college student where you're never qualified for the position is to upsell yourself and create, create value for yourself and then show how you'll be adding value to the firm. 
things. That's what Rahul did. And I think that's what a lot of people do as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Upselling yourself. And it's really this idea of learning and building in public, right? Because if you show people what questions you're asking and what your curiosities are and what your way of thinking about certain things, there's an opportunity there because they understand the sort of person you are and you can leverage you can leverage your domain knowledge or whatever you build up in that process of asking questions online and learning from other people to generate opportunities for yourself and invent your own job. And it's so wild that that can happen. I think, right, the people, especially our parents, but even people 10, 15 years older than us, they've, very few people have had the experience of creating their own job and inventing their own opportunity. And I think technology and all these different tools have blended together to create this unbelievable sort of space where that sort of stuff is possible because it still blows my mind. I reached out to Rahul on Twitter and I, and I was literally, I was like, dude, you're the goat. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> and he was like, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And, and that's so crazy, right? He's a kid from Rutgers University. I go to Georgia Tech. We live completely different locations. And yet I can reach out to him and congratulate him and try to talk to him and learn from him from his experiences and opportunities. And that's what I get the opportunity to do here. I I think about it as this book is just the best opportunity to have conversations with cool people. I don't know if I would have reached out to you without having the book as an excuse, basically. And I've reached out to a ton of people without the book as an excuse when the fact of the matter is I'm just interested in hearing what you're about and hearing what other people are about and the approach that you take to do things. And one of the things I want to talk about is, is 2020 is crazy, right? The time that we live in is absolutely nuts. There's so much going on, right? From not only us losing Kobe at the beginning of the year, but then also explosive racial violence protests. Portland was absolutely nuts for months. It honestly still is, right? Fires, right? This growing awareness and of the climate crisis, right? That the Midwest is having 500 year floods seemingly every year and every couple of months now. And what, in light of all that stuff, what makes you the most hopeful about the future and what excites you the most in, about your own life? I'm really biased, but Gen Z, honestly, I can't explain that in the future. I've tweeted about this and you've seen this, that I think Gen Z has an approach to these problems where it's not like they're mad at the boomers. Oh, boomers, you fucked up the climate. Oh no. Like they're not thinking about that. They're thinking, great. What's the next clean tech firm that we can come up with? Like, how do I specifically... Yeah fix our planet. I think, uh, you know, what, just in Gen Z Mafia, I've been so exposed to this group of people that I've never seen before. It's a full inspiration, right? When you walk into a library to study, you're not going into the library just to study. You're going into the library to be motivated by other people who are studying. Gotcha. It's almost like you guys are all in the studying cult, right? It's like a study group, but you're not together. I think Gen Z Mafia puts all those people together and they're creating this group of people who want to change the planet, who want to create a better future for themselves. They recognize the problems of today they're actively taking the steps for the future. And I'm really hopeful for Gen Z specifically to put that plan to the action. A lot of people say, oh, Gen Z is like all talk. They come with all these startup projects and they never get anywhere, but they do. There's so many projects that have taken off that have never been thought to be possible before. And I'm super excited for that in terms of like maybe 10, 15, 20 years, but rather the future as well. I'm really excited for Gen Z to take this future forward in our generation specifically. In terms of my life and the future, I'm really excited for being able to learn more and being able to translate what I learn into actual projects. Because like I mentioned, you only know so much, you're only able to create from what you know, but the more the larger things you're able to create, the bigger audiences you can cater to. 
So I'm really excited for being able to learn and being able to talk to different people, whether it be a random 15 minute chat that I have with some random founder or like an hour long kind of interview with you that I got to learn from. Any of these conversations are really just trying to help me learn more, whether it be the small, it's not even something technical. I'll have someone on the Gen Z Mafia Discord talk to me about GPT-3, what I've never, that I've never known about, or I was just on a call where I was trying to learn about Urbit. All these technical skills are great, but I think what it comes down to are the regular conversations I have with you understanding how your childhood impacted what you've done and things like that. I think those are the conversations that are really going to define what I build and what everyone else builds in the future. Awesome. Yeah. And and because you talked about two things there and and definitely for me, I absolutely agree with you looking to the right and the left of me and seeing people do unbelievable things has been so energizing. But uh, yeah, you, you mentioned two things where you said learning from people, people say that Gen Z is all talk, but then also the power of conversation. Okay. The power of young people joining the conversation, the power of young people having conversations with each other to reshape our understanding and create a different world. And and so w- one of the ideas that reminds me of is that I, I spoke to Justin Murphy yesterday and he he talked about content creators and he talked about content creators in a way that I've, I've never heard anyone talk about content creators and I love it. And, and so that's part of the reason I want to share it with you. And so he talked about content creators. He talked about artists as statesmen, world builders, people who are creating their own realities online. And the most interesting thing is that these people that create their different realities online, okay, online communities are a type of separate reality that people can escape into, okay? Most men leave lives of, of um, you know, quiet desperation in that people live their same nine to five for X number of years and then they retire or they do something that's unfulfilling and then they retire. But now people have this opportunity to escape into these different online realities. And what's most interesting is that it looks like these online realities are starting to influence our physical reality. And it's so energizing that Gen Z is such a driving force behind that in that a community like Gen Z Mafia is influencing our physical reality. Who knows what's going to happen with Fion or, or who knows what's going to happen with right play pixel but it's so unbelievable that all these different people are coming together and creating something to make the world a better place i, w- I would love to talk to you for, for uh, even longer hours and hours definitely but uh, yeah i want to say first of all i i really appreciate it honestly i reached out to you sort of out of the blue and and you ended up taking the call so that's super awesome that's also been one of my biggest sort of learnings from this is that the value of just cold emailing and asking for something. So I really appreciate you doing this and making the time. I'm sorry, you're pretty busy course, with school man. and stuff. But yeah, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, yeah. Of course, man. It is a blast having this and being able to chat about honestly everything, whether it be the startup ecosystem or creators and hearing about that. I think once again, a lot of this podcast wasn't just for you know you, me to talk to you about things, but I think it is also a learning experience for me. I really appreciate that, man. All right. Awesome. Take care. Awesome. Of course, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please like, subscribe, tweet, text, and share so that more people can find the podcast. Take care, and we'll see you next time.